good morning and good morning to you too this is law of the land with Gloria J Brown Marshall and this is another day another opportunity to try to get it right so what's in the news of course for law of the land where we try to cover not just legal issues but the impact of cases taking you behind the curtains to show you the intricacies of our court system and of course the highest court in the land the u.s supreme court where we have two african-american justices we have women on the u.s supreme court we have a variety of denominations and we have trouble right down there in DC with Clarence Thomas yes Clarence Thomas is in trouble again and that's the title of the article that I wrote that if you want to read more about what I have written then you can it's in the afro newspaper just put my name in and Clarence Thomas and you'll find out what I'm about to say right now Clarence Thomas whom I will say has been on the court about 31 years. He rose to the highest court um, with a lot of controversy. Some of you may remember the Anita Hill hearing during his confirmation process in which Anita Hill, who worked under him at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, remember the EEOC, the federal government entity that is supposed to be the agency where people who have accusations of discrimination go for the government to represent them or at least assist them in their representation well Clarence Thomas was the director of the EEOC at the time and he was accused by Anita Hill an Oklahoma law professor of sexual harassment that was how this man entered our national and international um, platform that we now um, call the media and from there he was confirmed anyway Anita Hill was vilified and this is well before the Me Too movement and he ascended to the court claiming now this is when he comes on he clothes himself in blackness that it was a high-tech lynching which I don't even think he even thought of that phrase because to me I don't think he's that creative and so Clarence Thomas becomes one of the nine justices on the highest court of this land and there's been controversy following him ever since his wife who's white and Clarence Thomas african-american um, live in Virginia he has said quite often that he is opposed to certain um, states rights and then he opposes others uh, laws and cases that involve civil rights and one wonders Virginia from the case of Loving versus Virginia was the state that had written in its law that the um, miscegenation or interracial marriages or interracial relationships were prohibited by law with consequences of incarceration if found guilty and the case in Loving for example where that interracial couple was not only arrested but convicted to um, the penitentiary and had to leave the state they appealed their conviction went to the US Supreme Court and that case is what allows us now to have interracial relationships it was found that the state law violating um, these 14th Amendment um, was struck down 
This is the same Clarence Thomas living in that state who opposes affirmative action, who opposes, um, well, what we'll say would be um, most of the legislation that involves people of color and, and buttressing the rights, the Voting Rights Act, for example, um, that people of color had fought and died for and other um, people who have been on their at their side from the for generations fought and died for. He opposes that. He says that affirmative action is just like slavery. This is a man who went to Yale Law School on affirmative action. But as we get into this particular situation, what we need to understand is that for 20 years, we found out he had been taking these luxury trips with Harlan Crow, a billionaire and mega donor to Republican and conservative causes. The controversy then is, well, Harlan Crow from Texas doesn't have a case before the court. So therefore, there's no conflict, it said, uh, many people who are, uh, you know, have a differing opinion on this. And so therefore, there's nothing wrong with Clarence Thomas taking these luxury trips, one of which cost half a million dollars, yes, $500,000 for one vacation trip over 20 years and not reporting it. Now, it's one thing to take a trip with a friend. It's another thing to have to report that because federal employees and even a U.S. Supreme Court justice is a federal employee must report these things or else there is corruption. That is the point to avoid corruption of our federal system. Now, many people say, oh, you roll your eyes. It's like, oh, yeah, we've got corruption. Yes, but can we undermine some of it? perhaps by forcing by law and policy federal employees to report these things. And so he is a federal employee making $285,000 a year of our taxpayer money, and he is supposed to report these things. And he knows it because he reported little minor things, but he never reported these huge things, like Harlan Crow buying his mother's house, Clarence Thomas's house. Yes, the family house that his mother lives in was bought the, the house was bought, as she had been living there for many years, by Harlan Crow, the Republican megadona billionaire, and other properties around her house. He actually pays the mortgage and the taxes on the house that Clarence Thomas, our Supreme Court Justice's mother, is living in. Now, you tell me, if one is a conservative ideologue, and Harlan Crow is, and he makes no bones about it, then is not whether or not he has a case before the court, is whether or not his Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is going to always follow the ideology of the conservatives and he is there as a watchdog for every vacation, for every outing, as that so-called friend, quote unquote, to make sure, unlike Chief Justice Roberts, who supported the law in a ruling that the Affordable Care Act was constitutional when the conservatives wanted it struck down on political means nothing else, but Chief Justice Roberts followed the law. This way we have a justice who will always know where he's supposed to go because he's got a watchdog on his tail day in and day out for whom he is deeply indebted and therefore will always follow that 
deep conservative ideological party line. And the reason why this is so concerning, not just that we have a conservative supermajority, so we have six conservatives, stronghold conservatives. Those are the conservatives who um, controlled and decided that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. Those are the ones who are saying that they have a, a viewpoint based on their opinions of this country that runs counter to what the rights and the privileges most of us have and expect to, con to continue to have into the future, we see that we have a supermajority and it only takes five Supreme Court justices to create the majority to give us the law of the land. So nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court and five of those justices create the law of the land. We have a supermajority because we have six. And the problem that I see here is that the credibility of the court as being the third and co-equal branch of government is falling fast. It used to be the branch of government people look to to not be politicized, to not fall into the muck and mire of pettiness. And now we see that this is the branch of government we have to be most concerned about because they sit for life. For their entire lives, they will stay in that position until they die if they want to. They can retire, but most of them die in office. So we have politicians who come and go in two, four, six-year cycles. These people stay on for life. And so his deep conservative ideology, which is now the most conservative on the court of all the conservatives, is being controlled, I say, by his debt to Harlan Crow the conservative ideologue. And so we have a U.S. Supreme Court justice, justice one after another with these revelations coming before us, deeply indebted to a conservative, to the conservative agenda. And he's able through his vote on the court, through his seniority on the court, to not only be someone who can likewise undermine any idea we have of justice, but also to implement an anti-woman, anti-black, anti-rights, and even anti-justice pogrom. This pogrom, I'm afraid to say, may be one that goes into the deeper part of our sense of what justice is. So let's move on to something I think is so important for those of you who care about justice. This story will curl your toes and I had to have Anna Wolf, who's an investigative reporter with Mississippi Today on our program. And this is a national show. This is a national issue. And I think it could be an issue that is this concern to people right here in the tri-state region. So Anna Wolf, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Gloria, for having me.
And um, Anna and I were people who celebrated her success. She won the Goldsmith Award for this story and her work. She's been a fierce um, person behind the scenes and in front of the scenes when it comes to issues of poverty and, and, and justice, especially economic justice. But this is something, when I say to people, what does a football player and mm. volleyball and welfare have in common, you have to explain to us. Please tell us this story. Sure. So you're referencing um, just one small part of a much larger scandal that took place over about a four-year period down here in Mississippi a, a few years ago from 2016 to 2020. Um, in one case, officials used $5 million in welfare money. This is uh, money from a federal program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, typically known as um, the welfare check. They used $5 million of, of, of this money to build a volleyball stadium at University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, they did this after uh, former NFL legend Brett Favre had lobbied them for the money um, in order to build this stadium at the school where his daughter played volleyball. Uh, and you're saying this to me, and it's, it's just mind-blowing. This stadium exists. We have a stadium. Is that was it built? Yep, yep. They built the stadium, and they did it under the pretext that they would offer programming for the underserved community in the area at this facility. Um, that they'd have classrooms where people could come get, you know, parenting classes or anger management classes, or um, you know, connected to other resources. Of course, that part of the project never took place. And so. How did you even begin the, 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 the breadcrumbs that led to um, Brett LaFroff? Sure. So, you know, I had been researching this program long before uh, the state auditor eventually launched an investigation into the spending of these dollars in 2019, um, really because I realized that a lot of the people who were needing this assistance, you know, very needy families who were applying for cash welfare were not receiving the assistance. Uh, Mississippi was approving less than 2% of people who were applying for this program. And I wanted to know where the rest of the money was going. You know, it's a block grant program. So the state gets the money every year, no matter what. And uh, I wanted to see what we were spending the rest of the money on. So just sort of pushing, pushing officials, pushing the welfare agency, trying to get records to show, you know, how we were spending these dollars. And um, eventually the state auditor launched an investigation. He made arrests in 2020. Uh, which is when we learned that um, at least $2 million of these dollars had been funneled to a pharmaceutical company uh, that was developing a cure for concussions. Um, this is a company that Brett Favre was sort of backing and investing in and lobbying for investors for. And um, so it was a pretty uh, quick leap to go from, you know, these people being arrested for funneling money in this company to realizing that this is a company that Brett Favre was backing um, and then pretty quickly after that, we're able to find out that the, the, the five million in welfare money had gone to the volleyball stadium also, you know, um, because of Brett Favre's support for this project. And I, I, there were people, as stated in one of your, your articles, um, who were working for this um, agency who didn't even know they had a job there. 
um, million dollar uh, mansions being bought with welfare money. All of these things um, taking place. But tell us more about the other people in this circle. Sure. So the state is now suing um, over three dozen people or companies um, who have received this money improperly or illegally. Um, and, and really what was happening was that the state agency was pushing tens of millions of these dollars through these two nonprofits. Um, once the money hit the nonprofit, it, it was sort of a black hole. You couldn't see then where these public dollars were being spent at the nonprofit level. And so they went to other athletes, um, uh, former running back Marcus Dupree, um, was was sort of hired on by the the program to do um, promotional you know activities for this welfare program and was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. They bought a horse ranch for him where he was supposedly supposed to provide equestrian services to underprivileged youth. Um, we paid over five million dollars to the family of WWE wrestler Ted DiBiase, um, known as the Million Dollar Man. Um, he was supposed to be doing kind of like youth development programs, and his sons were um, conducting like leadership training type courses. Um, they received $5 million in welfare for that work. Um, another athlete, Paul Lacoste, was putting on fitness camps uh, across the state and was paid over a million dollars for that work. Um, on and on, really, you know, in terms of what they were spending this money on, the nonprofit. Uh, operators were, you know, renting property that sat empty that they had ownership over. Um, you know, one of the, the sillier purchases was in the audit. It showed that they had, you know, paid for speeding tickets, for example, with this money. Um, it was really kind of endless what they what they thought thought up to do with with these funds. How much are we talking about altogether now? So the auditor found um, almost $100 million in potentially unallowable purchases. Forensic auditors who came in and did kind of a closer look at TANF um, said that it was at least $77 million uh, that was misspent here. You know, a lot of the spending is um, if they didn't have documentation to show what they did for it, you know, that's a, that would be a, a, violated, a violation. So, um, you know, a lot of this money, we still don't know exactly where it went or who it helped, um, but it's in the tens of millions. And where is Mississippi when it comes to the ranking of states with, with poverty? Right. So, of course, Mississippi is among the most impoverished states in the nation consistently. Um, you know, with our history, we have deep, entrenched generational poverty here, um, which is what makes I think this story all the more tragic that it took place here where, you know, there are people begging for opportunity that um, that are consistently um, deprived of it. And what about criminal consequences? Where are we in the process? So there is sort of these, these two tracks. There's the civil case where the state is trying to sue um, these individuals who receive this money, including Brett Favre, civilly to kind of try to recoup the, the money from them. And then there is the, the criminal charges. And um, uh, I believe four people have pled guilty to four, five people have pled guilty to, um, to federal criminal charges. 
Um, several have pled guilty to state charges, uh, but the federal investigation is ongoing. So, um, you know, the, the, the characters that we've been talking about, Brett Farr, these other athletes, um, most of them have not been charged criminally, although they are um, being sued civilly. Um, Brett Favre has not been charged criminally. The only athlete um, is one of the, the wrestler's sons has been charged criminally with fraud. Um, and, and, you know, all of these people who have pled guilty, the former nonprofit director, the former director of the state agency, have agreed to aid the prosecution in their ongoing um, probe into this um, scandal. So we see that they the, the feds are still acting. They're still gathering information from these defendants. Um, to see, you know, if there are other charges to be brought. And I think that we're all just waiting to see if, um, you know, they end up using those witnesses to, to kind of catch, catch the, the bigger fish, right? So, um, you know, is Brett Favre going to be charged? The other character who was involved in sort of helping to direct this spending was the former governor, Brett Favre, uh, former governor Bill Bryant. And so we're looking to see if, the feds are going to follow that trail from those defendants to, to you know, potentially um, investigating the former governor's involvement. And I, I know your, your schedule is tight, but I want to ask you more about two of these entities you just mentioned, the former governor and Favre. So the former governor has, what is his position on this? Is this I, I, I've read some of the pieces that you've written, and he seems to take this approach that he did not know that this um, scandal was taking place. Right. Yeah. So he definitely denies any wrongdoing, although in a long sit down interview that we had prior to um, our, our series coming out last year, he did admit that, you know, it didn't look good and that he uh, should have done more essentially to to catch this misspending and this, um, you know, this grift that was occurring. Um, he is kind of the sole person over the the welfare department. So under in, in Mississippi, the Department of Human Services, the welfare agency, is an agency directly under the governor's office. So, you know, the director who is put in place to run that agency is appointed by the governor and also answers to the governor. And so in some text messages that we were able to obtain, um, which sort of bolstered this whole investigation, um, you know, that we're here talking about, you could in their communication how the former governor would um, reach out to the welfare director with a, a sort of request like, um, hey, can we help these guys out? And he's talking about a nonprofit that is asking for a uh, welfare grant from the agency. And, you know, instead of saying, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll send them the application and, like, we'll see, hopefully they'll have a successful application, he just says, yes, we will fund them. We will do it today. And it, it shows the, the influence that the former governor had over, over the agency. And really this idea that um, a lot of people in government have, have recognized that these people, these, these directors of these state agencies can't really get away with doing much, um, let alone, you know, running up a $77 million welfare tab without the governor's knowledge. Um, and so I think that's that's the main thing that we were trying to explore with our series and, you know, quickly found out that there were other areas of, of this scandal that um, that Phil Bryant was very closely um, attached to, including the pharmaceutical company that I that I mentioned, 
which he had agreed to actually accept stock in after he left office um, before the arrest in early 2020 kind of derailed that, that arrangement. And this information was gained primarily through the Freedom of Information Act? So the text messages that, that really bolstered the investigation um, were not retrieved through public records. They were, uh, you know, that was that was some deep sourcing that um, that I used to, to be able to obtain those. Well, I won't go to your your source. Uh, I'll leave that. But I'll, I will have one last question about Favre. So mm-hmm. what is his position? I, I, I've read this most recent article of yours in which he denies having um, any um, money come to him personally. What, what, how did he play this? I mean, this, this is just an amazing cast of characters here. I mean, right. it would make for a great um, streamer um, for us <laughs> to see how these people would come together with this scheme. Who was the mastermind? Was he the mastermind of this? That's a really good question. I think that's still kind of what we're trying to parse out. You know, there were so if we're, we're just talking about the volleyball stadium and the money that he received personally to um, I'll, I'll also uh, tell, tell this for viewers, but in addition to the five million that went to the volleyball stadium, Brett Favre also took himself personally uh, 1.1 million in welfare money that was a profit to him uh, for uh, essentially a promotional campaign. So cutting a radio ad, doing kind of PSA work about the welfare program. So he definitely can't deny that he received money directly um, because that is what you know, that, that he was paid to, to do that work. And, um, you know, he kind of justifies that by saying, well, that's what that's what people pay me to do that work, right? I'm a celebrity, so my name is, is worth that. And I did a radio ad telling people that they could go get, you know, help for their family through this, this nonprofit's program. So that's how he justifies that. And then um, as far as this way... You know, they they did say, again, that the volleyball stadium was going to be providing services to people. So that's how they justified building it. And which is, you know, to you and I, sounds ridiculous. Right. But um, but that is the the way that they kind of got around the federal prohibition on using this money for brick and mortar construction projects Um, and how that scheme came to be is that um, there, there really were attorneys at DHS at the time who were um, sort of advising the nonprofit and advising Brett Favre and the University of Southern Mississippi that this was a way that they could get around that prohibition. So as far as mastermind, it's kind of hard to, hard to say. You know, the nonprofit founder was certainly um, corrupted in that she was willing to do what she was told, you know, without really... Uh, thinking about if it was the right thing to do or not. The agency attorneys were corrupted in that they uh, were were finding loopholes and and ways to um, make this spending happen that really, you know, you and I could look at and say that's not a a welfare purpose. Um, And the University of Southern Mississippi was looking at a big, you know, dollar amount that they could get to improve uh, facilities on their campus, and so they didn't do their due diligence in making sure that this was the right thing to do. Um, and then Brett Favre was sort of the one behind behind it all, pushing um, and and using his influence to make it happen. 
and that influence being primarily the cult of celebrity and football. Mm-hmm. Which is that's right. I mean, it's about, got such yeah. a stronghold, you know, mm-hmm. on our on our culture, and especially down here in the South, where you know, you, we mentioned Mississippi being the most impoverished state. You know, we're we're fiftieth in a, in a lot of the lists of the good things uh, in this country. But one thing we do really well is we produce great athletes, and that's that's one thing we've got going for us. We put a lot of emphasis and priority behind that. And the priority of a football legend and how he could, you know, keep the, all these balls in place. And in the end, we're talking about so many people in need going without during the harshest times and the repercussions of that generationally of what that loss mm. is. I thank you so much, Anna Wolf. And if there's ever a story that you feel we should know up here, even if it's about down there, mm. let me know, okay? I will do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We're just hearing about what's taking place in Mississippi here, but that's been going on for um, years now as she broke that story in award-winning journalism. And we have to think about our welfare programs. We talk about the money that needs to go into the the pockets within the, the households to feed the children, to make sure that those who are in need get what they need. Could that be happening up north, too? We always look at the South as a different country. It isn't. Wanted to be at one point, but it is not. So what could be happening up here is something that's already happening down there. We need to learn from each other. And speaking of learning from each other, and that story just has so many implications to it. Um, I want us to have a conversation. So I want to open these phone lines and, uh, and talk with you. It's been a, quite some time since we've had a chance to really talk with each other. And so if possible, if you want to give me a call, you can. That would be a great thing for you to do. And if you do want to give me a call, I would like to hear from you and know what's on your mind. And yes, I know it's been a while, but we will um, be able to talk again to chat about perhaps our welfare system. Um, are, but I think I would like to find out what you think about Clarence Thomas and what's going on um, with our U.S. Supreme Court. Um, right now, its standing is about uh, a public uh, viewpoint of it is around hovering around uh, 25%, where it used to be the highest of the branches at 40%. 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877 is the call in line. I'd like to hear from you. We haven't talked as family in some time. 212-209-2877. And the other thing I think is so important about this um, Mississippi welfare case and the scandal, the corruption, is that it's from the highest of the state, the governor appointing the the director of, of welfare for the state operating under the governor. So this is just one program, the brazenness of it. And I'm thinking, or not one program, but one scandal that we're talking about, how many scandals have taken place with the abuse of, of federal funds coming into the state to give to the poorest of the poor within a poor state. 
And we're talking about possible $100 million being siphoned off. Only 2%, 2% of people applying for the program actually received any funding. We wonder who those 2% would probably be. We could look into that another scandal about that. In order to build a volleyball stadium in Mississippi where Brett Favre's daughter attends, or, or attended at the time, University of Southern Mississippi. These things, you, you, you just, you know, reality becomes something that beyond the the fiction that we could make up. Even as a fiction writer, I wonder if would I ever be able to make up something this intricate, but also this just blasphemous. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. Give me a call. I want to hear from you. I'll be right back listening to your voices, your questions, your comments, your viewpoints. And you know I think that my listeners are the smartest. 212-209-2877. Good morning. You're on Law of the Land. Good morning, Gloria. So good to hear you. What's on your mind? Is it Clarence Thomas? Is it our welfare case in Mississippi, uh, the world generally? What's on your mind? All of it because you're so on point. That's why it's important that we always have you on. None of this preemptive for green juices, even though I love my green juice, but <laughs> you got to keep being on. <laughs> so, listen, um, you know what it is. It's like you you live by wanting to be white, you're going to die by wanting to be white. It's what I see with Clarence Thomas. They're coming for him. You know, he's, he's betrayed us forever. And, you know, when you think... When you think you're not of the black race and that you could just co-opt and go into the other race and they accept you, you married to him and all of that, they're coming for him. They've used him up, and now all of this dirt that's been out there forever, right? Why is it coming out now? So, and, and then the hypocrisy and how so ill he has been in representing affirmative action, knowing they have gone well, he's benefited from it. This is all coming to light, and we just have to pay close attention and understand, I don't want I don't hate and I don't want wrong on him, but we have to understand that when these people are being put in front of us as our leaders and, and people who supposedly are going to represent us, we've got to understand fully what's being taught to us and what we're seeing. So just thank you. Um, I'm sorry it's happening to him, but um, that's that's we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn another lesson because of it. Well, thank you. And here's here's my concern. And this is another show I want to do at some time. Is this um, you know you love whom you love. But that doesn't mean whom you love means that you have to hate me. So if you love someone who doesn't look like me, that's fine. That's well, that's good. Why hate me? If that's the one you love, focus on the one you love. Don't focus on hating a black woman just because you love somebody who's not a black woman. I mean, I, I, this is like if someone has a, a different sexual orientation and you hate straight people. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And there's still some deeper investigation, some self-examination that needs to take place if there has got to be so much animosity toward another group of people when you should be focused on or one should be focused on loving themselves. 
So let's just put that in the air. Let's put some self-love in the air. And maybe that, you know, the need for the self-love will give us this idea that we don't have to be the people who are always trying to undermine another group of people. And I don't care who that other group is. Thank you so much. And let's take our next caller. We're on Law of the Land. We are on the air. Good morning. Oh, hi. Um, I can hardly hear you. So talk over you. I can barely hear you. Uh, the guest that you had talking about Mississippi and the building of the stadium with TANF money, I had not heard that particular story, but I did hear some really uh, comparable, awful stories. Uh, there's a show called Reveal, R-E-V-E-A-L. Uh, I guess it's a website, reveal.org probably. Uh, they do a one-hour show on NYC. They play it on NYC a couple of times a week, and they play it on NYE, the public stations. And they did a show about a year or two ago that was incredibly revealing um, about Oklahoma, not Mississippi. But they're doing the same thing, uh, egregious examples. Um, by the way, we have Bill Clinton to thank for this because when he redid the welfare law in the 1990s, they made it very loose. Um, it was block granted to the states, and they had this loose category in there called poverty prevention. And under poverty prevention, states can pretty much do whatever they want. And two of the things that Oklahoma was doing, uh, while they were not giving any money to actual needy families, there were two examples that I remember. One was they gave $1,800 to a young woman who was going to college her combined parents' income was $250,000, and they gave her $1,800 a year to go to college under poverty prevention because sometimes girls who don't go to college end up poor. That was one example. I'm sure her quarter of a million dollar parents could easily have sent her to college. The other example was they were using TANF money for um, couples counseling, marriage counseling for middle-class couples because, under poverty prevention because right. sometimes couples who have uh, problems and they get counseling, sometimes they get divorced and sometimes the woman ends up in poverty. So under poverty prevention, they're doing couples counseling for middle-class families. There were other egregious examples, but what do you think about all that? Apparently they can do that legally. I, I really think that we're just scratching the surface. I mean, we have um, 50 states and territories. We have so many different ways in which this TANF money, and you're right, it's, it's, the legislation changed under Bill Clinton when he was president. And there's so many ways in which um, people have now abused the welfare system from the top down. And I remember the phrase, well, you know, if you feed the dog, they won't hunt. I just remember that from the um, the arguments that took place during the time period in which the welfare laws were undergoing um, examination as to what their the changes would be. And so they didn't want to feed the dog. They wanted to make sure the dog would be out there on the street. And that's why we see people who are getting our government benefits out cleaning the streets and doing these things. That came during this time period in which they said you have to force the dog to go hunt. And yet these people who are wealthy sucking off of these systems. I mean, there's so much. When I think about even the the, um, the small business administration loans that are given out, they want to test for drugs and, and alcohol, et cetera, for people who are getting public assistance who are poor. Why don't you test for drugs 
federal government, for those people who have um, businesses applying for small business loans. Nobody tests them to find out what they are doing, you know, privately. But they do that when it comes to certain states for people who are trying to get money um, from our federal systems. So thank you so much for bringing up other examples. And as I said, I'm concerned because if someone within the federal government or state government is listening to this program, and I'm sure you are, I want you to start thinking about what are the safeguards to prevent these things from happening here. What are the safeguards? If this could happen in real time here in um, a place where we're supposedly have these checks and balances, where we supposedly have these safeguards, but obviously $100 million in Mississippi and so many other states in which there are abuses of the welfare system um, taking place from the top down, from the top down, we need to make sure that people know somebody is watching. There are whistleblowers there. And whistleblower, please know if there's something that you want to tell us, let me know. GBMarshall at WBAI.org is my email. GBMarshall with two L's at WBAI.org. Let us know if you're out there and there's something happening in the welfare system that you believe we should know from the top down. And we have one more caller on Law of the Land. Gloria, good morning. This is good uh, morning. TK. Calling How are the Bronx. you? Please take calls more often. I listen to you all the time. We need you, honey. You're the best. You are the best. Um, what you're saying, totally, 100%. Um, it happens on every level. Um, when we get these um, monies from the government, like, okay, like when we had the last hurricane, stuff like that in New York, all that money, they steal it too. It doesn't go to the little people. It starts up high with the county executive. They start siphoning money to their friends. I was there. I watched them do it. The, the unions get a little bit. This one gets a little bit. That one gets a little bit. It's like envelopes go out all over the place, and the work that they're supposed to be doing, they barely do it. They scrape the surface, and nobody cares, and it's okay. But like you said, let the little guy ask for $2 to eat for the food stamps, and they want to do all kind of searches and all kind of investigations and make you pee in a cup and take a hair sample and ask you if your mother ever had a job. And it's, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. But i got to ask you one thing. Should yes. we stack these courts, the Supreme Court? Because we got to get Clarence Thomas. we got to mobilize some of these people. What is your feeling on that? Because I know Thurgood is turning over in his grave. Thank you, Gloria. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. You've said so much. And if we stack the courts, if they decided, if Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to extend the court, tried to add more justices because he believed the justices on the court at the time when he was trying to get the um, the New Deal passed and it would have the, he would have the legislation passed and then it would be challenged and would go to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court would find major parts of it unconstitutional. So he tried to pack the court. And so then the court found that packing the court was unconstitutional. If you look at it that way, that's, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. And that's what we're going to end up with. Because whatever we're doing, for example, Clarence Thomas's wife, Jenny, uh, they said she attended the January 6th 
a, a lynch mob on the Capitol. If she didn't attend personally, she sent and text messages encouraging the attack on the Capitol. That she is a leader at the time of the very conservative Tea Party movement. That she has been a staunch ultra-conservative in many ways that she's taken speaking engagements time and time again where there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that she's taken that have been um, undocumented that have, have come out later that she's been paid uh, money from these ultra-conservative organizations. Um, uh, we don't even know the extent of the money that has flown into the pockets of Jenny and Thomas, Jenny and, and Clarence Thomas. We have no idea, but I do know this. I, I believe they are a cancer on the court and um, that his self-hatred has grown to a point where it is cancerous um, because he's, he's not only the weakest link when it comes to the um, conservatives trying to find one who could be the one they control over time. So this 20-year friendship that he has, that they both, um, Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas claim they have, which is fine, they could be dear friends. But as dear friends, the control that, that the conservatives have over him, meaning that if he even had a moment of consciousness in which he thought, I, I do want to think differently. They have him in their clutches so that he can even breathe a liberal thought, think an idea of progressiveness before they would snatch him back. Because think about it. it it's, it's almost it, it, the closest thing I can think of. If someone wanted an indoctrination, that means that they would keep an eye on the person constantly be with them at all times and debt them into a place where financial gratitude would be there and there would always be this sense of indebtedness. And so Clarence Thomas ascended to the high court feeling indebted to the conservatives because he believed this is something that's come out with it. I mean, you have some little family, black family business. It was thought that when he was born and raised in Pinport, Georgia, Pinpoint, Georgia is a very, um, let's say, a, a, a low income, very much poverty stricken area where they have um, very few um, opportunities and they have these these fisheries there. And it's really a grind. It's like one step out of the plantation life, basically one small step out of plantation life. And he was able to rise up through the Catholic Church and through conservatives who saw something in him. And when he attended Yale Law School on affirmative action programs, he believed that the African-Americans at Yale Law School snubbed him because of his deep Mississippi accent because he didn't come from money. So he started off with an idea of, of, of black consciousness that was turned because he felt that he had been snubbed by middle class blacks. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't have a whole lot for the black elite because I, too, have been snubbed by the black elite. They've made a lot of harmful decisions when it comes to the black community. The so-called black elite, these people who rise up 
you know, and decide that they're going to be the leaders um, of they're black. And so they're black. If they could press a button, they wouldn't be black anymore. Most of them. And and many of them are the ones that that many of the whites put in positions of power over institutions and programs, et cetera, involving black people. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was a black person up in that that horrendous mix in Mississippi welfare program that they use as some face as well. But I'm going to tell you. The black elite has has done damage. They they have put schisms between the rest of the black community and the black middle class in a time when we cannot afford it. And so Clarence Thomas being snubbed, being thought of not being attractive, you know, um, all of these things, being darker skin, all of these things that we see within the black community played out in a way that angered him, enraged him. And so when Thurgood Marshall, the first black U.S. Um, U.S. Supreme Court, um, was was um, retiring and then later died, um, you know, from many, many illnesses he had carried for many times, who had been a civil rights attorney, who had worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund who had done so much. He argued the case of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. He had done all these things. So Clarence Thomas becomes the opposite. Thurgood Marshall, light skin, um, Bob Vaughn, you know, personality, many books written about him, films about him. Clarence Thomas, um, dark skin, poor, black, Thurgood Marshall, um, middle class, um, black, all these things that, that come together that create these schisms within the black communities. And these schisms are not just in the black community. We know this light skin, dark skin thing exists around the world in India, Pakistan, um, Latin America, so many different places, Native Americans, all these different people have been, you know, made crazy or crazed by this European way of, of, of pitting one against another, divide and conquer. Well, all these isms are within Clarence Thomas that play out and we get it. I mean, even the caller said, yes, there's a way in which you understand his self-hate, but we cannot afford it. And we cannot afford the power that he has on the court affecting the rest of the black community with the anti-civil rights, anti-affirmative action, anti-anything black. And if you have a black person who's a party in a case and, and, and Clarence Thomas bet you a dollar to a donut he is going to do whatever it takes to undermine the case of the black person that's how anti-black this black man is and so my concern is packing the court at this time would be a time period of packing the court with additional justices who might be you know, uh, progressive, liberal, whatever. But what's good for the goose is going to be good for the ganders. As soon as we have a, um, a Republican president back in office, conservative, then we're going to have them packing a court. And then what are we going to have? A court with 40 people on it, all sitting for life? Um, some people have said we need term limits on the court. And I would agree with that. I think the term limits may be like perhaps 12 years. So not sit for life, but sit for a good time frame but so that it takes time to, to learn more about the court. Even so, as someone covering the court, I found that to be true. I've There's so much. Our time is up, and I'm sure Michael G., my, my engineer, is saying, oh, my goodness, Gloria is on a roll, and we have to call this a day for today. 
But as I said, my listeners are the smartest, and I thank you, I thank you, I thank you for still caring, for still wanting to make your community, your country a better place. Many people have said, forget it, throw their hands up in the air and wave them like they just don't care because it's too much. I am so proud of you for staying in the game. Thank you, Michael G., and I'll see you on the radio.